duration, so how much sleep you need, is partially heritable. Some people need less and people need more. The proportion of people who need fewer than five hours of sleep, for example, is zero. But there are some differences, you know, seven hours, eight hours, nine hours, that might have some range. There's also a heritable component of like your preferred sleep time. That has to do with the natural endogenous secretion of melatonin, the sleep promoting hormone. And for someone who has an early diurnal prep, you're going to start secreting melatonin multiple hours, three, four, five hours before you're going to bed. For some people with later chronotypes, they might even only start secreting it a half hour before bedtime. When he's watching TV, he's getting exposed to blue light, which suppresses that melatonin, even if it were being produced. So yes, there is a heritable component. And then on the, on the flip side, when you combine that with environmental factors that also further delay your bedtime. Hello everyone, I'm Denise Gorant. Welcome to Bite Your Tongue, the podcast. Thanks for joining us as we speak with experts, authors, parents, and even young adults to explore the transition from parenting our young children to building healthy relationships with our now adults. Hopefully we'll grow together, learn about ourselves, our young adults, and of course, when to bite our tongues. We are so happy you're with us, so let's get started. Welcome back and welcome to fall. I don't know about you, but I am so glad fall is here. Denver was so hot this summer. I also wonder how you enjoyed our rewind episodes. We had such great feedback. I actually listened to them all again and enjoyed it. We'd love to know your faves. Now let's refresh your memory before we get started. We left you hanging at the end of July on our episode with Mark Seisler talking about young adults and COVID. And it seems like COVID is just hanging on and on. So it's good for us to remember a lot of what he said, the climate our kids are living in during their early years in life, life as adults, that is. We need to be patient, we need to be kind, and we need to be understanding. But anyway, as you know, as we got to know Mark, we realized that he was also a sleep researcher and his father was head of the sleep clinic at Harvard. So how could we have him on the line and not ask about our sleep? I don't know about the rest of you, but most people our age are struggling with sleep. So no more waiting. This is a short episode with Mark Seisler, and Ellen and I continue the conversation, but this time about sleep, our sleep. But first, as always, we do have to get a little bit of business out of the way. A quick reminder, there are so many ways to support our podcast. Just visit our website at biteyourtonguepodcast.com. Look in the right-hand corner for a big orange button that says how to support us. Please know there's many options. A lot of people have said, I want to support you, but I don't need a mug. All right, so buy us a $5 cup of coffee. That option is there too. And thanks to recent supporters Betsy and Missy for their support. Also, the deal still stands with ShaperMint, our wonderful sponsor. 20% off on their website when you check out. Just put in Bite Your Tongue, no spaces. So let's get started. And to refresh your memory again, we're going to start with Ellen's introduction of Mark and go from there. Enjoy. 
Okay, the second part is something that I bet almost every single person listening struggles with, and that is sleep. As we looked into Mark's background, we learned that in addition to all these accomplishments, that he was a graduate student researching at the School of Psychological Sciences in the Faculty of Medicine at, Man is it Monash University? Monash, okay. And an honorary research fellow at the Institute for Breathing and Sleep at Austin Health. And he's also a member of the Lichtman Lab at the Harvard Brain Science Initiative and is studying sleep physiology. And I have to mention too, the apple does not fall far from the tree. His dad, Charles Seisler, is a professor of sleep medicine at Harvard Medical School and the chief of the Division of Sleep and Circadian Disorders in the Departments of Medicine and Neurology at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. So this is a, a family that is immersed in sleep. And I'm really curious at some point, I want you to actually confess to us if your family does sleep better than every other one. All right, let's talk about sleep because I was up at 3.30. <laughs> Can I start by just saying that I'm not surprised that Denise picked up, I don't know, I don't, I can't believe we didn't do sleep earlier because when Denise was a young mother, I don't even know if it's right to say this anymore, but we called her based on Seinfeld had a show, uh, a character on a show, which was the, the soup Nazi. Right. So we called Denise the sleep Nazi because she read <laughs> a book on sleeping, which was a great book. I don't even remember who, uh, healthy sleep habits, happy child. It's the best book. Anyone out there that has a kid. Well, now for their <laughs> grandchildren, baby. buy it for your child, for your grandchildren. His name was and Mark. Bloom something. I can't remember. Not well, I'm surprised you don't remember his name, Denise. I know she I actually know. called him oh, a very, very busy <laughs> doctor, and I forget what hot teaching hospital. And she called him and spent like an hour on the phone with him, and he gave her all this advice about um how important it is for babies and children to get sleep. And it's the truth, as you know. You you know more about this than we would ever know. So or I'm wondering if your dad or your mom or what was it like for you growing up? Was your dad more in the like Denise or did he sort of take a hands off approach to sleep? What was it like for you? Yeah, uh, it's a great question. And, and I love that story. <laughs> I so I, first of all, I will disclose that my parents actually met in a sleep lab. Oh my so gosh. my mom uh, is, you know, equally invested in sleep. She is now practicing as a pediatrician and, and is less, less of her career is oriented around sleep. Okay, wait, wait, but, wait. You uh, need to tell her. I found the name of the book, Mark Weisblatt, Happy Sleep Habits, Healthy Child. I want you to email me, Mark. I want to know what she thinks of that book, okay? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, right. go ahead. Sounds good. Sorry. Yeah, no, and and so growing up, yeah, there's no question that sleep was a priority. I had all three, I have two sisters and all three of us had bedtimes that were, you know, two standard deviations earlier than everyone else in our grade. <laughs> you know, the phone had to be downstairs charging a quarter of a mile away from our bedroom uh, and, and all that. But most, the most salient memory that I have is when I was 11 years old, that's that was around the age when everyone was starting to have sleepovers and i really wanted to there was some big event and i wanted to go have a sleepover and my my dad so, so of course i asked for permission from my parents and and my dad said that he would have 
prefer to call them wakeovers because there's, you know, no sleep happened. <laughs> and I said, yeah, but that's fine. I mean, we'll just go to bed later and then I'll wake up later and I'll still get the same number of hours of sleep. And he challenged me to write down my bedtimes and my wake times every day for a month. He helped me run a plot a line through it that showed that the later I went to bed, that's the right. less sleep I got. And that's true of yeah. babies. That's true of people would say, keep the baby up late, they'll sleep late. My method was put them to bed earlier, or they'll sleep later. And that worked. I mean, see, it is the real truth. Like it is. I had them in bed by 6 p.m. Dinner, <laughs> and, and it would be, we'd have to be at dinner at 6.30. Katie's got to go home and go to bed. <laughs> But here's, and Denise is like that too. Denise, you go to bed. I go to bed, but we really got to start talking about all of us now are really having, you know, I have always been like Ellen said, uh, the sleep Nazi, but as I get older, I struggle a lot too. What is it about our age? Why are we having so many issues at this age sleeping when we finally can sleep? Our kids are gone or we have, I have people telling me they wake up in the middle of the night and can't go to bed. They can't fall asleep. Does it have something to do with our age? What's the scoop on all this? Well, first of all, I don't know if you're at this age and and obviously you chipper and, and full of energy, but I will say that some older adults start to, it's not an uncommon experience for challenges with sleeping to start to creep in in, in older adult life. There was a group of Harvard investigators and this is the most neuro that will go in this um, session, but they have discovered that there's a group of cells in the part of the brain that regulates our drive for sleep. And this group of cells is called the ventrolateral preoptic nucleus. And when those cells are active, they act as a switch. It's a binary switch. And so when when you go to sleep and the VLPO neurons or what they're called, when they start to be activated, the light switch turns off and you're ready to sleep. And that usually takes 10 to 15 minutes as you're falling asleep. And then for most of the night, there are some awakenings that happen, but for most of the night you're asleep and then they are deactivated and then you wake up. Some older adults, it's been observed that there is a loss of those neurons. and so that all of a sudden that light switch, which used to be binary and go on to off, stays somewhere in the middle of those two extremes for more of the night. And so it can be in some ways easier to fall asleep at different times of the day. Like it might be easier to take a nap at a time that you wouldn't have been able to when you were younger, but it's harder to necessarily stay asleep for as long as the night. As, as people get older, even if you're spending more time in bed, that sleep is often more fragmented. And, and so it feels less restful. So is there a solution for this? I mean, I know we can't go in and turn our little knobs on and off or whatever you're saying, yeah. neurons back and forth, but what can we do to make it better? Because I sent out to listeners questions and I would say the one that came up a lot was what's this middle of the night, guess I'll be awake for a while thing. And is it cumulative? Is this lack of sleep hurting us? And a lot of us are working into our 60s and 70s. We can't take a nap at three in the afternoon. Right. It's challenging. So first of all, there's a myth 
or what is now looking like a myth that older adults require less sleep than younger adults. And, and, and it's looking more like it's really reduced ability to sleep as much. I love that. That is great. Mm. So with that in mind, I mean, that uh, when people are infants, they need more sleep than right. No, no, we get young it, adults. Get it, but once you get to I, that, yeah, point. and we'll read in AARP and stuff. You know, seniors sixty-five plus only need seven hours of sleep. I need ten to really feel good. I'm telling you, nine. At oh my least. God, I've never. I don't think I've ever had ten hours of sleep. But you don't go to bed at eight thirty <laughs> at night like I do. I'm afraid that I'll be up. That going to bed early is clearly good. But I'm afraid if I go to bed at I don't, I don't even know if I could fall asleep at eight thirty. But even ten thirty, that I'll be up at four in the morning. So let's go, Mark. What can we do? Yeah. Yeah. So what what do you do? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that one of the really important things to do is to try to identify what, if there is anything other than this progressive loss of the neurons uh, that is contributing to the sleep issues. So that might be pain, which happens for a lot of adults. Mm -hmm. It might be frequent urination or insomnia or a sleep disorder, which would be something like obstructive sleep apnea, where you're snoring and then waking up and falling asleep. And you might not even realize that that's happening. And it might be other things, restless leg syndrome, or it could be daytime drowsiness where you haven't gotten enough sleep at night, then you nap during the day and it's later in the day. And then that affects your ability to fall asleep again within a couple of hours. So if you can identify one of those scenarios as impairing your ability to get restful sleep, the most important thing is to address and try to eliminate that factor. And then outside of that, which would involve in the case of something like insomnia or obstructive sleep apnea or that sort of thing, uh, where it's a sleep disorder that might involve a sleep study and then going developing a, a treatment plan and then once you alleviate that factor that's driving the sleep issues. What's a sleep plan? Like, I'm going to tell you about my husband in a minute, because this is really why I want to talk about this. And I've tried <laughs> to get him to go to a sleep clinic. What's a sleep plan? What would he expect if he went to a sleep clinic? Yeah, so that would depend on the signs and symptoms of the kind of challenges with his sleep that he would convey to a clinician ahead of time. What does the study involve? Like go to bed at this time, don't do this, don't do that, what, or take medicine. What does it involve just in general? Yeah. So it, again, it, it kind of depends if there's a specific symptom that would make them think that it's a certain condition. Like for narcolepsy, you would have a different set of diagnostic tests oh, than you would you mean, if yeah. you have mm -hmm. suspicion for obstructive sleep apnea. But mm -hmm. for the most part, it would involve an overnight study in the lab where you would come in and wear some wires and probably not get the best sleep of your life. Mm -hmm. uh, but then they would look at how you slept and analyze that. The, there is some progress with having home administered sleep tests, which would be preferable for a lot of people. And probably a better result. You'd get a better idea of how they really slept in their own, right, exactly. own, their own environment, right? Yeah. And, and even exactly what you said, what is the sleep environment like? If there's mm -hmm, a mm -hmm. TV at the end of the bed and that is on with volume and there, there are no blackout shades, even though they might seem like little things, they 
all contribute to the way that someone sleeps. For those of us who probably don't, you know, it's like, I don't need that. It's, you know, I'm not sleeping as well as I used to. What are the most important things? You mentioned like TV in the room or what are the things that we tend to be like, I don't need a sleep study for myself, but I know I have really bad sleep hygiene. And, And what are the things that we could do in our everyday lives that would help our sleep? I think if I had one piece of advice or one recommendation, it would be to establish and maintain a normal sleep schedule. What is that though? That will look different for different people. Part of that is like, so uh, Ellen, I think you were mentioning going to bed later than Denise. So your normal sleep schedule might be relatively delayed. It might be 10 p.m. until 6 a.m. or 11. I don't know exactly what it is, but uh, even midnight to 8 a.m., for example. Then if you're able to maintain that, not just Monday through Friday, but Monday through Monday, every day, that is very beneficial to your ability to fall asleep in a reasonable amount of time and stay asleep. The architecture of your sleep will adjust to that sleep window. And because sleep doesn't look the same all the way through the night. And so if you are going to bed and sleeping eight hours one night from midnight to 8am, and then the next night you're going to bed at 9pm and waking up at 4am, and then the next night you're going to bed at 2am because it's a weekend and, and you've gone out and you get back late, and you're switching up the number of hours that you get and the timing of your sleep, it's going to be harder to fall asleep. So it's going to be less efficient and lower quality. But also that architecture, your brain isn't able to anticipate and change the architecture of your sleep. I know on a certain night, I'm going to get six hours of sleep tonight. It's less than usual. But your brain isn't able to adjust so that it's proportional to the amount of restorative sleep that you would get if it were an eight hour sleep window. So instead of getting, you know, the same amount, but just a lower volume or duration of each of those important elements of sleep, you're missing entire parts of sleep. Does that make sense? I think that makes so so much sense because what I see from a lot of people, in particular, my husband, when he was working, he's retired now that he wouldn't get much sleep all week. And then Saturday he'd sleep till like two in the afternoon. And that would be, he'd say he was making up for all his lack of sleep. I said, well, the reason you don't sleep all week is because you're sleeping till two o'clock on Saturday. If you get up <laughs> at eight o'clock on Saturday, you'd be tired on Sunday. Right. But my real question here is, could any of this be hereditary? So Ellen and my podcast, I've got a sleep expert on, I need to ask this. My husband has struggled his whole life with sleep, but so I watched his parents the exact same way. And now as he's gone into retirement, it's, he's doing exactly what his parents did. They stay up till really late watching old movies. And I, when I say really late, I mean two, three, four in the morning. Okay. And sometimes uh-huh. falling asleep on the couch. And then his parents wouldn't get up till 11 or 12. They'd have their breakfast at 11 or 12 and then repeat the same thing. That doesn't work for me. And it doesn't work for most of the world. Can he change this? Or is this a hereditary thing that he developed and it's just the way he is, and we have to work around it. <laughs> yeah, and, and that is such an important question uh, because, yeah, I think a lot of people can identify with that mismatch of the timing and, and what sleep looks like. And that can, 
that can legitimately be challenging for social being, right? If if people are orienting their sleep in different ways, since it does take up. You can say challenging for the relationship. It's fine. Okay. We've dealt, we've been married 40 some years. We've dealt with it, <laughs> but now I want him to change. So let's go. Okay. Yeah. Because it's also not healthy. Yeah. To answer your question, there are certainly heritable components of sleep, both in terms of duration. So how much sleep you need is partially heritable. Some people need less and people need more. The proportion of people who need fewer than five hours of sleep, for example, is zero. But there are some differences, you know, seven hours, eight hours, nine hours, that might have some range. There's also a heritable component of when you want to go, like your preferred sleep time, which would be diurnal preference is the kind of term for that, where you have early chronotypes, which would be the kind of early to bed, early to rise, and then late chronotypes. And that has to do with the natural endogenous secretion of melatonin, the sleep promoting hormone. And for someone who has an early diurnal preference, which it sounds like you might, you're going to start secreting melatonin multiple hours, three, four, five hours before Mm -hmm. you're going to bed. Mm -hmm. Whereas uh, for some people with later chronotypes, they might even only start secreting it a half hour before bedtime. Mm -hmm. And that is compounded by, in the case of your husband, when he's watching TV, he's getting exposed to blue light which suppresses that melatonin, even if it were being produced. So yes, there is a heritable component. Mm -hmm. And then on the, on the flip side, when you combine that with environmental factors that also further delay your bedtime. So would he be going to bed later if there were no electric lighting? Mm -hmm. Probably there's a good chance. It sounds like, but definitely not three or four in the morning. (laughs) That also has to do. That's yeah. that's a good point. You just make a rule: get your television off by eight thirty or something, or nine thirty, whatever it might be. Yeah. So, so I have yeah three questions because I know we're running out of time, and that is one of them. Make sure we ask about drugs. About what? Drugs. Drugs. Well, I <laughs> yes, I was going <laughs> to okay. ask about melatonin taking. Melatonin. That's part of my drug question. Okay, go ahead. The effect of COVID on sleep behavior and everything, because I know my sleep got much worse with COVID because I didn't have to get up and do the commute every day. And so you can stay up a little bit later. My sleep is just terrible over the last two years. And I think that's, I wondered if there's any research on that. And then the blue light. So all of these things, COVID, drugs, melatonin, blue light. Well, and the blue light, I'm so guilty of that. I will sometimes go I upstairs too. at eight o'clock and then play on my phone or watch yeah. something on my iPad. And you think it's relaxing you, but it's doing something to your eyes the whole time. Right. Yeah. And, and there's really no question about that one. I mean, the observation has been made. The mechanism has been identified. And it's true. It's just so hard to implement right so it's yeah. like the the question is always well what can we do about sleep other than that <laughs> but it's so exactly right <laughs> i love that Which, but that's what we need to do right yeah and at some level it's societal i mean it's hard when my alarm clock is built into my phone right right the our homework we have to submit online and I'm working on that late at night and everyone has their different reasons. 
So it, it is challenging. And go ahead. Sorry. No, no, you, you got it. No, no, mine's not important. I just love talking to no. you. Go ahead. We'll all right. All no, I, were you going to ask about the cherry, the tart cherry juice? I am going to ask about that, but that's in the medication. But I want to say my sister, and when I do this at work, she leaves her phone and her, her iPad and everything downstairs. Incredible. You know, and when she does that, she sleeps. And I've done it. How does she wake up in the morning? This is my biggest fear. I've never used an alarm clock. Wow. Like this morning, I had to get up at 3.30. My body tells me I'll get up at 3.30. I got up at 3.30 a.m. to take care of the deer. Oh, my gosh. Okay. All right. But what about the people who don't? Well, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. You can use an old-fashioned alarm clock. <laughs> mm. All right. Go ahead, Mark. I'm sorry. We're yeah, going to talk yeah. about medicine. My sister swears by tartary juice. Melatonin makes me too drowsy. Same for me. Uh-huh. Yeah, same for me. So is there anything that works and that's non-addicting? Yeah, it's it's a good question. To my knowledge, there isn't a magic pill that would help from a medication perspective, with the exception of some sleep conditions have right, you know, medications that would be prescribed. One of the challenges with melatonin is it is a hormone that we would naturally produce. One of the things that has happened as the prevalence of melatonin use has kind of exploded over the last, I mean, there was just a a study by the CDC where in the last 10 years, pediatric melatonin use has risen by 530%. So that's probably bad, right? Is that not good? That's probably not good. Yeah. Well, I think part of the issue is that it is not classified as a drug because it is a Mm-hmm. A hormone that's naturally produced usually. And so there's much, much less regulation. And so it's being mixed into sugary gummies and, and drinks and, and all sorts of things that actually counter the effects of the melatonin, first of all. So really, they just ought to be reading my book by Mark Weisbluff and forget the melatonin. Right. He needs right. to write a book for adults, Denise. Uh, yeah, he should. But anyway, go ahead, Mark. We keep interrupting you and you have so much knowledge. And so I think another thing is it's being given at doses that are way higher than what would be produced by a human. So usually someone might have a half a gram of melatonin is what would be produced naturally. And now you can find pills that are each 20 milligram, 50 milligram pill. And so you're taking enough melatonin for 40, for two months. (laughs) So do you think it would help for us to try a less dose of melatonin, like a half gram and take it how many hours before we go to bed? If, if I use melatonin uh, and I usually do that when I'm trying to go to bed earlier than I normally am. Right. If I, yeah. Yeah. Right. If I'm going to bed at a constant time, then I have no need for it. But if I'm trying to advance the timing of my sleep, I will break apart a, a pill and only have a half a milligram. And I usually have that half hour to an hour before I, my intended bedtime. Half hour to an hour. Okay. And well, I, that's good. And I usually try to then limit my exposure to blue light. Right. Now, all of that is, is, yeah, it's very challenging because we're all addicted to all of our blue lights. Um, Steve Jobs, may you rest in peace. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh. And as we're all not resting. Um, anyway, right. is there anything else? Uh, what have you ever heard of tart cherry juice to drink when you wake up in the middle of the night? 
You know, I have not heard of that one. Okay. Uh, so I, I can't comment on that. Yeah. I'm just my I'm sister. I, yeah, my sister sw- swears by it, and I bought some. It hasn't done much for me, but, you know, I might take a shot of vodka. She takes a shot of um, I was going to say, Denise, for a while, you would, you would just take a shot at night, and it would just knock you knock out. Knock me right out. But, but alcohol is a really bad thing. I think people think, oh, well, you go to sleep, you know, whatever, but you will wake up in the middle of the night. If you overdrink alcohol. So what I use it for sometimes is the middle of the night wake up because then I will sleep till morning. Mm. If I wake up at three or four and I want to sleep till seven, I'll take a shot of I I can't believe I'm saying this on a national podcast or whatever. I'll take a, (laughs) you know, a shot or a half a shot of I'm going to say a full shot of scotch (laughs) and and I'm not a drinker at all. So that will really knock me out. Um, Yeah. Anyway, and that's a bad thing, right? That's a bad thing. Well, right? yeah, I, I probably, yeah, would not be one to recommend that. I but, know, I know, um, I know, I know. Yeah. So just yeah. let me ask you, before you leave our listeners with your la- couple things for sleep, do your parents sleep well? Do they ever complain about sleep? Yeah, my parents sleep sleep well, yes. Uh, they And do they go to bed at a regular time, wake up at a regular time, and not use blue light in their bedroom? They do a great job. The blue light in the bedroom, I would say, is the most challenging. Yeah, of everything. There's no TV, and there's never been a TV in any of our bedrooms. But I think the infiltration of the phone is... Yeah, yeah. you don't need a TV. Yeah. Yeah. They they do both sleep very regularly at different okay. times. So my so my mom goes to bed very early and wakes up very early and then goes to work in the hospital and, and all right. that. And then my dad, uh, who has a little bit better ability to self-select his work hours mm-hmm. being in research, has a later diurnal preference. And so he usually goes to bed after midnight and then wakes up later. Wait a minute, he goes to bed after midnight and what time does he wake up? Around 8.30 or, or 9 or something. Oh, wow. That's pretty good. So, yeah. I mean, I think I hear that. That was one of the things I'd written down. We didn't talk about it. I hear this from a lot of my married women friends. They go to bed and their husbands many times just fall asleep on the couch. And that frustrates them. And so that's some, that's a, a relationship thing that needs to be dealt with. But it also has to do with sleep. They don't want to go to bed. The other one wants to go to bed. Anyway, Mark, this has been more than a more than I thought a great a great pleasure more than I even thought so I'm glad I read that article in the New York Times and tracked you down do you get to go back to Australia to finish that Fulbright or not I am hoping to probably not through a formal program but okay uh you know it would give some sense of closure to make it back down there and, right. and say hi I mean of course we continued working with the wonderful research team in Australia so it'd be fun to get together when it's appropriate to do yeah that. And was this in Melbourne I can't remember yeah yeah, yeah Melbourne, which is supposed to be the most yeah. wonderful city I have a friend who lives there we need three last pieces of advice or two or three last pieces of advice before we can say goodbye to you I'm writing these down too just to let you know <laughs> yeah so I, I would say the keys for sleep and mental health uh, and sleep for mental health in that sense would be to, like I said try to optimize sleep consistency uh, which would be the the timing of sleep Quality, which would include monitoring for symptoms of something that might be a disorder, like uh, if you're snoring a lot or have a lot of waking up during the middle of the night, and then also duration. Um, those are kind of the three pillars of of sleep health and building the right habits in those areas and routines within them goes a long way. That's part one. 
part two would be knowing that there will be ups and downs and achieving your best sleep isn't always possible. But sometimes uh, we can fall into scenarios where it's like an all or nothing kind of situation. And well, I'm not going to get good sleep anyway tonight. So I'm just going to stay up and, and do all this. But kind of embracing that there will be ups and downs and, and leaning on your good habits to sustain you through challenging times is is a valuable um, approach. And then the, the third part is that if you do think that you might have a diagnosable condition, it's really important to seek treatment because, or first of all, diagnosis and then treatment, because there are lots of therapies, both for sleep and for mental health conditions that can lead to better health and well-being overall. Excellent. Wow. And no, and no blue lights. Um, I want to ask you one other quick question based on the, if we have a partner we sleep with, would we notice if they had sleep apnea or is it literally not a sound? Is it a sound people make or we wouldn't notice it if we're sleeping, would we? Well, if it does wake you up, which is not uncommon, many times the snoring is not recognized by the person, but by their bed partner. Okay. So that's what I wondered. If my husband had something like that, I would probably realize right. it, right? Yeah. Okay. okay. That's what yeah. I wondered. Okay. Yeah. Thank you so much, Mark, for joining us. It was just excellent pleasure. I think that our listeners are going to just love this. We might be changing this podcast to uh, don't mess up your sleep or something. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much. Yeah, a lot of fun. Thank you both so much as well. Mark, once again, thank you. It was hard to keep this episode in our files and not drop it till now, but I want our listeners to know I did work on some of Mark's advice with my husband this summer. We tried to keep a regular sleep schedule and put away those blue lights. I think we cannot complain unless we sacrifice some things like our phones, our iPads, or the equivalent. Trying the lower dose of melatonin was a win-win too. And just understanding how our bodies change is so helpful. So we hope you get some good Z's, folks, because we've got some incredible episodes planned over the next few months. Send us your questions and episode ideas to biteyourtonguepodcast at gmail.com. Also, please visit our website for lots of easy ways to support the podcast. And remember to follow us on social media. Thank you again to Connie Gorant Fisher, our audio engineer. And remember, listeners, sometimes you may just have to bite your tongue.